All right. So no one likes to struggle, right? I think that's a pretty good. Any, any show of hands, who, who likes to struggle? Anybody says that they like to struggle? I don't think there are many statements more true than this one in our society today. Uh, the, world, the word struggle is actually maybe even a, a curse word in our society. Uh, we have all kinds of things to try to prevent struggle, right? I mean, we have lawnmowers that really cut it for you, and we call it a struggle when we push it. Uh, so we get a rider, and then we still call it a struggle because we have to put gas in it. That's kind of tough, you know. So, so you know, we, we call it just about everything struggle. The old Staples commercial, uh, you can go over one slide. If you remember this, the easy button, right? Just, just hit the easy button, and that is pretty much the story of our society. Just, just press that easy button. It will make things better, right? The, the, just the thought of something being difficult, something being hard to get through, uh, is just kind of too much. It's one of the greatest fears we have as a culture. Uh, yet despite our attempts to hit the easy button, despite how hard we try to work to try to keep from struggling, anybody still struggling anyway? Uh, amen, right? So, so we're, we're all, no matter how hard that we're working, we all seem to feel like this a lot of times, right? So we have financial struggles in our life that we're, that we're pushing up the hill. We have health struggles in our lives. As we talk about Eliza getting better, praise the Lord, but that's been a struggle for that family. They probably felt like this the last couple of days uh, as they're fighting through this. Spiritual struggles, you know, we have darkness all around us. When we look at this world, we watch the news, and man, we just feel like, oh man, we're, we're trying to push this rock up up a hill. Uh, COVID has proven to be a huge struggle, right? And so we've seen suicides go up. We've seen uh, drug overdoses. Uh, we've seen mental health. All these things have skyrocketed throughout this pandemic because people are struggling and, and, and they don't really have answers the way they want to have them. So the questions we come to is we approach a world and no matter how hard we try to get out of the struggle, we still seem to see struggle. So how do we rejoice in our struggles? That seems kind of kind of strange, but today we're going to be talking about how we can rejoice in our struggle. So join me as we read God's word, Colossians 1, 24 through 29. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make, to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. In him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this wonderful day you've given us. We praise you, we thank you, we love you. We just pray for your spirit to be upon us as we, as we learn more about your word, as we learn about rejoicing in the struggle. Lord God, I know that there are people here that are having some big struggles. I know we all have struggles in our lives. I know we all have things... Uh, that, that we kind of bring with us things in our lives, uh, whether it's school, whether it's work, whether it's family. Uh, there's, there's all kinds of things that we are going through. So, Lord, help us to learn from Paul here, who definitely knows what it's like to struggle, how to rejoice despite the difficulties in our lives. And God, just open up our hearts, our minds to your word, 
and help us to learn from you, God. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, so we see today we're going to discuss three of the first three ways. There are actually six ways. We're going to talk about the next three next week. We're going to talk about the first three ways we can rejoice in the struggle. And the first is you can rejoice in the struggle by focusing on the ministry. Focusing on the ministry. I'm going to reread verses 24 through 25 to refresh our memories. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. So if we remember last week, Paul has just given an exhortation to the believers in Colossae to stand firm on the truth of the gospel, right? There's all this falsehood around. He said, hey, stand firm on the gospel. He's talked about Christ and envisioning the invisible. He talked about how Christ is 100% God, 100% man. We can see God in Christ. And then he goes on now to talk about how he has had to stand firm uh, and suffer on their behalf. Remember, where is Paul right now? He's in prison. And why is he in, in prison? For sharing the gospel to the nations, right? And so even though he didn't plant the church in Colossae, Epaphras uh, did that, uh, he was a convert of Paul, he still is suffering because uh, on their behalf, because he's, he has preached the gospel that has led to their salvation. But yet he still rejoices. And, and why does he rejoice in his suffering? He actually, if you remember, we, we taught through Philippians, if you were here back then, and, and it, was the, it was a book of joy. Throughout the book, he uses the word rejoice tons of times, and yet he's in, the, he's in prison when he writes Philippians, just like in Colossians. So it really is kind of strange. So how, doesn't it seem kind of off base? We're, we're rejoicing in our sufferings? Like that seems like kind of oxymoronic. It just seems a little bit off base. Who rejoices in their sufferings? And as we discussed in the introduction, most people in their sufferings, they don't rejoice. They, they flee or they try to escape from it. They, they, they don't rejoice. So Paul, Paul shows us here that those who have a high view of God rejoice in their sufferings. Those who have a high view of God rejoice in their suffering. So we see this in the early church, Acts chapter 5 verses 40 and 41. We see the apostles and they're, and they're preaching the gospel, they're spreading the word, and the Jews aren't a big fan of this. And so they take them and they have them flogged. And we read here it says, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council and what, they were really un, uh, upset, they couldn't believe that God let them get flogged. They can't. No, it says they rejoiced, right? They were rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Wow. Is that how we approach suffering for Christ? Or do we kind of approach it more like, I can't believe they left me out again. I can't believe I didn't get that job promotion. It's probably because, you know, they, they, they don't like that I won't fudge the numbers. They won't like, you know, because of my Christian morals. Maybe that's why. No, we complain about it, right? I mean, I think that's a really tough conviction, I know, for myself, and I, I think for all of us. But how amazing is this? They rejoice because they were flogged for Christ. So before getting uh, into suffering for godliness, and we're going to talk about that as well, sometimes suffering isn't for godliness, right? Sometimes suffering is self-inflicted, and uh, that, that, those hurt a little bit more, right? Sometimes it's because we made a bad decision. We got in the wrong relationship we chose the wrong job. Uh, we, we made bad financial moves or decisions. We tried to take the easy way out. Uh, we, we made a bad purchase. We didn't really pray about it or think about it, and we kind of got in over our heads. We maybe made some life decisions that weren't 
the most ideal, and now we're suffering negative consequences because of what we did. And so these are, are those negative struggles, those struggles that actually, they're not externally placed upon us, they, they came from ourselves. We, we kind of put ourselves in that position, and these can be really difficult to handle. And, and, and how do we rejoice even then, even when we suffer the consequences of our bad decisions, uh, of maybe us not thinking all the way through it, praying through it, putting God first in our lives? But God is a merciful God, and praise be to God that God is a merciful God who redeems our bad decisions. He takes our bad decisions, and he still uses them for his glory and for our good. Romans 8, 28, everything works out for the good of those who are in Christ Jesus. Sometimes for the good of those is struggle, and that's a hard word for us, right? Struggling is not something we really want to go after. We see in Genesis 50, 20 that, that the things that, that, that Joseph's brothers meant for him, for evil, they sold him to slavery, he went through all kinds of bad stuff, God turned it for good. And I've been reading a biography on Chuck Colson. I don't know if anybody knows who Chuck Colson is. He started Prison Fellowship, and it's made a huge impact in our world. And he was a man who understood suffering for bad choices. Uh, bad company corrupts good morals. Like, so Owen Strayan, who is a, a big guy in the SBC, wrote this biography, and I'm just finishing it. And he, uh, he was notoriously known as the axe man for uh, President Nixon. Uh, he ended up being linked to Watergate, even though he didn't really play a pivotal role in that. Uh, he ended up actually serving some jail time for his involvement with the Nixon administration. And the consequences of that bad decision led to a bad outcome, right? It led to prison. I mean, that's a big thing. And not only prison, but the stigma that comes from being a felon. He had a record. He had a rap sheet, right? And so here this guy is. He, he, you would think he would be hopeless, but even before he gets sentenced, even before his trial, he's born again. God saves his soul because he'd hit the rock bottom, and he finally was like, oh man, you know, I need to figure something out. He thought he had everything. He was this political guy that was just skyrocketing into success. He had been chosen by President Nixon. I mean, chosen by the President of the United States to be his right-hand man, to be one of those guys up there. But yet he suffered, and he, he had that, that rap sheet, that, that thing, but, but yet God saved his soul. And after his prison, even though he still had nightmares about his experience, even though he still struggled, God used that horrible experience to help him to reach out to those who had similar experiences. And he starts this prison fellowship, and I'm sure you all heard of Angel Tree, which is part of prison fellowship. This, this is spread throughout the whole world. I think 110 countries last I checked. And God is using it. He, he used it to restore and mature this broken man and use it to bring glory to his name. So we need to sometimes embrace our suffering and allow God to use our sufferings, when they're, especially when they're our own fault when we place ourselves, know that he's going to take those and he's not going to let them go unused. He's going to use them to bring you closer to him so you embrace that suffering and he will bring you through it by his power. But getting back to our scripture today, we see that Paul's suffering for what he's doing for Christ. And so this is a, a, a righteous suffering. He's actually suffering for righteousness. Sometimes we suffer for doing the wrong thing, but sometimes we suffer for doing the right thing. And that's not preached from a lot of pulpits, right? A lot of people don't say, if you do the right thing, you're going to suffer. That usually doesn't bring a big crowd when you, when you say it that way. But Paul's living proof that, that that is true. So what kind of suffering is Paul referring to here? Well, if anybody's read a lot of Paul, they know that he's went through a lot of stuff, right? He's been flogged multiple times shipwrecked multiple times, stoned and left for dead, uh, you know, among others. We could go on for a while. And currently, obviously, he's where? He's in prison, suffering for the gospel. But yet he's rejoicing. And, but why is he rejoicing? He did this because he was all about the glory of God. He wanted to see God glorified, and he wanted to see others have the, the opportunity 
to uh, come to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. Then the, the, the next phrase here has been pretty difficult for a lot of commentators. And as I studied, it is a very difficult phrase to grasp. He says that in his flesh here, he is filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of the church. So this is where we see Paul rejoicing in his suffering because he's, he's, he's focusing on his ministry, what he's doing for God, what God is doing through him, and the glorification of Christ rather than focusing on his imprisonment. But how does Paul's suffering add to the afflictions of Christ? Well, first off, we know that it does not mean that he added to salvation. Uh, Christ said on the cross, John nineteen thirty. what does he say? It says, when, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, right? So it wasn't, oh, it just started, or it's, it's, it's ongoing, or no, he said, it is finished. Christ's death on the cross was completely sufficient to cover our sins. He didn't need any help adding to, to the cross. That, that, that is not what this means, right? We see Hebrews 1.3, at the end of Hebrews 1.3, it says, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He, he ascended into heaven, right? He made complete purification for our sins. It's now at the right hand of the Father. Nothing further is needed for forgiveness of sins, not by works, by us, or even by Paul. Nothing was needed to add to salvation. So what does Paul mean when he says that he is filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of the church? Well, Paul wants the, the church in Colossae to know that he is experiencing persecution that is for Christ. So people hate Jesus, and so they will hate him. Uh, people killed Jesus, so they're going to want to kill him, and they are successful. He's beheaded later in life. So when people hate you, they hate Jesus in you when you are doing righteousness. Uh, and so what he's saying is, hey, I'm suffering for Christ, and I'm suffering for the body of Christ. He even says that he bears on his body the marks and blows intended for Christ in Galatians 6, 6 17 here. It says, for I bear on my body the marks of Christ. And he did. He had lashings. He had marks that Jesus Christ had before he was crucified. He did suffer, and he did bear on his body the marks of Jesus. He had suffered for Christ. Um, commentator Sam Storms really helps us flush this out a little bit. So there's, there's two good P words here. The first one is propitiation, and that is the appeasement of God's wrath. God hates sin. Sin has to be judged. Jesus took on uh, the wrath of God for us on the cross. That Praise the Lord for that. So Paul played no, ro no role in propitiation. He didn't appease the wrath of God. But what he did is he played a role in presentation. So we all present the gospel, and Paul presented the gospel in a very tangible way to the believers of the first century. He presented the gospel in a way where he took on, bore, bore the marks of Christ. He took on that suffering. He took on that persecution that a lot of people wouldn't have done. And so he added to those afflictions on, for, on, for the sake of the body so that people saw, hey, this guy really means what he says. He presented the gospel in a very clear and understandable way through the spoken word, the preached word, through his letters, and even through his suffering. Moving forward to verse 25, we, we see that Paul recalls his personal calling to minister. This word minister here actually means servant. Uh, it's actually uh, a word we actually use for deacon uh, other places as well. We see in, in Acts uh, chapter 7. So those who minister to God's church must be servant leaders. And it's not my job as pastor to rule dictatorial fashion and, 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 and not serve the church. Pastors are to be sacrificial, and, but yet bold. Uh, they're to be loving yet full of truth. 
and Paul did just this. Now, Pastor Travis at Good Shepherd, uh, our, our sending church, the church that actually helped start our church here, uh, told a story about Adrian Rogers. If anybody knows Adrian Rogers, he was this booming voice. I mean, guy had a voice on him, and, and, he, and he was a huge SBC guy, had a nice, pretty big church, very successful guy, a very good pastor, very good preacher. And he's walking into his big church, and Pastor Travis said he was actually right behind him decades ago, watching him, walking behind him, thinking, oh, wow, this is Pastor Adrian Rogers. This is the man. He's like a legend. And there's a candy wrapper on the parking lot, like just sitting there. And he watches Pastor Rogers pick up, pick up their candy wrapper and throw it in the trash on the way in. And he just said how that really spoke to him as a young man, as a, as a guy who was being trained up to be a pastor one day, to see this guy who, man, everybody wanted to meet him, everybody wanted to know him, everybody wanted to listen to him. He had a successful radio program, you know, like, and it still goes even after his death, uh, Love Worth Finding. Uh, so, you know, to watch this guy serve, servant leader, that, that is how a pastor should be. That is how each one of us should be. Never too good to serve the body in whatever way is necessary. The next word we see here is stewardship. So he's given stewardship for the church in Colossae. And this word stewardship means household manager or administration. And he was to help uh, manage and administrate over this church along with Epaphras. He was to, to help Epaphras through these things. And we're going to see in the coming weeks how he combats a lot of false teaching. And he stewards the church that way. And as we come to the end of verse 25, I love this last phrase here. To make the word of God fully known. So fully known. I, I love that. So th that's the desire for me in this church. And as I preach and as I teach, I desire that we all fully know the word of God. And I realize that that is an unrealistic, unreasonable, unreachable goal. We will never fully know the word of God this side of eternity. One day we will. And that, praise God, you know, if we look at, at 1 Corinthians 13, we'll, we, we will see through a glass dimly right now, but one day we will understand and understand it. But I want us to have a firm grasp on, on the doctrine of the Bible, all the, all the big doctrines of the Bible. I want us to know Scripture. I want us to have a high view of God, a high view of His Word, and I want us to seek to know Christ by His Word. And each of us can rejoice, even in the midst of our struggles, by focusing on, on the ministry, focusing on service to others. That'll help us rejoice and focusing on serving the Lord Jesus Christ. We can also rejoice in the, in the struggle by focusing on the mystery, focusing on the mystery. Join me as I read verses 26 and 27 again. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to the saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ's in you the hope of glory. So everybody likes a good mystery, right? Anybody not like a good mystery? I mean, we all love to try to figure it out, follow the clues, figure out who done it, right? Uh, yeah, my, my English is really good today. You should have heard me in growth group, too. I had, I had to go in there. So my wife and I were blessed to be able to do a mystery din dinner theater one time, and it was a blast. You know, it was really cool to kind of see the acting and try to pick out the clues and write things down and try to figure out oh, who, who done it, right? Well, there's a mystery throughout the whole Old Testament as we, as we read it. And, and right after the fall of man, this mystery starts. So we have creation in Genesis 1, which we talked about this morning, and growth group, and everything is perfect. And then we have, you know, Genesis 2, it's still perfect. And then we get Genesis 3, and the fall of man, the sin of mankind happens. And right after that, Genesis 3.15, we hear 
this scripture. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. And this is God talking to the serpent, Satan. And you scratch your head like, what, what does this mean? You know, what, what, who, he shall bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. You know, I, well, we call this the Proto-Evangelium. It's the, the first gospel. It's saying, hey, Jesus is going to come and he's going to right this wrong. And as we move forward, we see Genesis twenty-two eighteen. It's not up here. But we see that all the nations of the earth will be blessed through Abraham. Well, that, that's confusing because when we read the Old Testament, we see Israel's blessed because of God and because of Abraham. We don't see, we see a few Gentiles. We mentioned Ruth and different people that are kind of grafted in. Ruth, Rahab, and people like that. But but it seems like it's mostly just Israel. The other nations of the world, some of them are being annihilated. You know, we're watching, we're like, I don't see how this makes sense. It's a mystery. How are all the nations of the world? And then it gets even more deeply in Ezekiel 36, 26, uh, which says, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Well, How's God going to do that? We, you know, we, we don't, we're just kind of getting these little bits of mystery. We're getting these clues as we read the whole Old Testament. And that's the beauty of the Old Testament. Once you know the New Testament really well, it's great to go back and see, oh, wow, all these clues of what's coming. Isaiah 53 speaks of a suffering servant who will take on the sin of the world. And this suffering servant would provide salvation to the ends of the earth, as we see in Isaiah 49.6. What does it say here at the end? It's actually talking about Jesus. It says, I will make you a light for the nations that my salvation may reach what? To the ends of the earth. Not for just Israel, for the ends of the earth, all. all. We talked about that uh, this morning as well. We're, we're like the, when we talk about the heavens and the earth, it's complete. And this is complete for God so loved the world, right? Not, not God so loved the tribe of Judah or God so loved the, tri- you know, the, the nation of Israel. God so loved the world. Salvation would be opened up to all. And I could go on, we could go through this mystery for at least five days probably, going through all of these things, teaching all of the, the clues that pointed to the coming of Christ. And praise be to God, we, we know who done it. You like my English? It's, uh, Jesus done it. So right, he, he is the one. He is the mystery. He's the answer to that mystery. He's the proto-evangelium, the answer to the first gospel in Genesis 3.15. He is the one who will take your heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. He is the one who is the suffering servant that died so that salvation would reach all of the world. Wow. I mean, how amazing is that we can look back and see what they couldn't see. Even Ezekiel, as he wrote those words about, about a new heart, he didn't understand it the way we understand it. We, we're able to look back and understand it in such a big way because of the Word of God that is now complete, that we have the, the, the full counsel of God. And then the next, the next portion, the next ex- explanation of this mystery is seen uh, through three R's that I came up with to try to help us understand this a little bit. And the first one is the reconciler of this mystery, and obviously that is Christ who provides salvation for the world. And then we see the reach of this mystery here. We see that it's to all the world, right? It's not just to, to part of the world. It's to, the, to, to, to make uh, known among the Gentiles the riches of this glory of, the myst- of this mystery. And then finally, we see the result of this mystery. And the result of this mystery is the hope of glory, as we saw in verse 27. The, and this hope of glory is, is kind of a twofold hope. We have a hope of glory to be revealed. We have eternal life with Jesus Christ if we are a believer, and that is a great hope. That is a wonderful hope when we put our faith and trust in Christ. 
but we also have the Holy Spirit that indwells us and signs and seals and delivers us as a believer, even as we walk. We have been reconciled through Christ. We who were far off have been brought near and can now approach the throne of grace with confidence. We can pray to the creator God, the one who made everything, the one who is way bigger than we could ever imagine, the one who spoke us into existence and knit us together in our mother's womb, we can have a relationship with. We can rejoice because God walks with us wherever we go, and we can rejoice because the mystery has been revealed to us, Jesus Christ. And lastly, we can rejoice in the struggle by focusing on maturity, by focusing on maturity. Join me as we read these last two verses again, 28 and 29. In him we, procl- or him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. So Paul uses some key words in these two verses. Uh, the goal of these words is to pre- present everyone mature in Christ. And what does it mean to be mature in Christ? Well, first off, we need to understand what this Greek word for mature means here. Uh, this word is teleos, which means complete, perfect, genuine, whole, or mature. It's actually the same Greek word we mentioned last week in Matthew five forty-eight. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Wow, that's a, that's a tough, tough word, Jesus, right? You must be perfect, as we talked about last week. We, we can't be perfect. You know, we, we can't even be good, much less perfect. And, and, and how, how amazing is that? Yet we also know that, that, that he will perfect us one day. One day after we die, after we are, uh, you know, we, we are, our old, old has passed away, our new body comes, we are transformed, we will be perfected. How amazing is that? But we know we are to continue striving to that. And that, that's the point that Paul's making here. We need to be continuing, continually moving toward maturity, becoming more and more like Christ through his work. We have his imputed righteousness already given to us, but we are co- to continue being, continually being sanctified, right? We allow the word of God, we allow the people of God, we allow other influences to, to sharpen us, to sanctify us, to make us more like him. And so how, do we, how are we encouraged to maturity? Well, the Word of God must be proclaimed in two ways to help us mature. And number one, it has to be proclaimed in a negative way. Negatively, we'll say here. So this word warning is nutheteo, which means to admonish, to correct, to reprove, to instruct, or to encourage. And this is something that does not happen as much as it needs to in our churches today. This is a vital part of church ministry. And this is where ministry steps on toes. This is where, when I'm preaching and people start to kind of kind of get, get back in their seat, change positions a little bit because it kind of hurts a little bit sharp. It hurts me when I preach it because I'm preaching to myself as well because I don't got it all together either. It, it's, it's, it's the part where it says the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword. It convicts, right? It instructs. It calls out sin. And it's a convicting power of preaching. And as difficult as this type of preaching is, we need to be taught under such preaching. We cannot grow unless our sin is dealt with. The next we have positively. We have the word of God being positively preached. And this teaching word is didasco, uh, which is teaching uh, truth in a proactive and positive way. It's, it's expositionally preaching through the word of God. And there is a negative component to that sometimes, too, depending on what verses you get to. And this, uh, note, note that Paul, though, he, he started off by telling them, kind of using that word warning or admonishing. And the way that, that, that true biblical preaching and teaching needs to go is we need to start by, 
by completely demolishing faulty thinking. Uh, we need to completely de demolish things that are congruent with our culture so that we can build on a new foundation. So often we try to add truth to our minds that are already full of garbage. And so what we try to do is we try to fit these truths, and it's almost like watching a Jenga thing. And we're like, we, oh, we'll take that one out, but then we're going to put a truth here. What happens to the Jenga if you mess with it for a while? It comes crashing down because it's not built on a solid foundation. And, and we, we, we like to do that. We like to add Jesus to our lives so that we get to run. We, he's our co-pilot, which is garbage because he doesn't do that. He's going to be the Lord of your life or he's not going to be there at all. He's not, he's not riding shotgun. We've talked about that before. So, so many pastors even present the word like that, where it's like you just need to add this to your life. You just need to do this. Uh, you just need to, instead of hitting what we need to stop doing, we need to repent of our sins, right? In order to come to, to a saving knowledge of Christ, it's not that you just believe all the right things and add it to your life. It's that you, you die to yourself, what you want to do, what, what your trajectory is, is no longer a viable option. It, you completely repent, which means turn away. You're going this way. Now you're going a different way. You repent of your sins. You turn from your sins. And then you build your life on the solid rock of Jesus Christ. It, it's not that you just add that in. And sadly, many, many preachers won't preach hard things like that. They won't preach things that are controversial in our culture today. They, they, they won't go in those areas. They, they just focus on the, the positive teachings, the, the things that make you feel good, the things that, that draw a big crowd that, that even unbelievers would agree with, right? You know, you'd be a good employee, you know, work hard, you know, those kind of things. And, and you'll hear sermon series after sermon series that use a part of one verse and preach four sermons on that. And it's what man has to say. It's not what God has to say. It's what man has to say. And Frankly, I don't care what man has to say, and I hope that you don't care what man has to say either, because what man has to say is not going to live forever, is not going to last forever. It will burn up the captive and hollow philosophies that we're going to get into as we continue throughout this book. You're, you're going to see the Colossians were hearing a lot of man's ideas. You're going to see the Colossians were, were buying into a lot of captive philosophies and hollow philosophies that th they were fighting through, and Paul starts demolishing those and saying, no, it's not about your self-esteem. It's not about how great you are. It's not about this pagan God. It's not about these things. It's about Christ. We build our lives on the solid rock of Jesus Christ. Many churches today cherry-pick these topical sermons, and they cherry-pick verses, and they take them out of context, and they twist them, and they make them say something that they don't say. I can't tell you how many times I've heard a sermon, and it's completely not in context. It's completely not. And that is why we expositionally preach here. That's why we go through book by book, because then I can't sneak something up on you. I have to address it as it comes, and you have to address it as it comes. The Word of God is confronting, it's convicting, and it should change us. This weak type of preaching where we cherry-pick things that leads to a growth efficiency in our churches. It, it, it leads uh, to a deficiency of wisdom, which we see addressed in these verses as well. Because Paul t encourages us to learn with all wisdom. And wisdom is using knowledge in the right way. You know, a lot of people will try to equip you with a lot of knowledge, but they don't teach you how to use that knowledge. And that is where wisdom really comes in. We can learn all kinds of truth, but it may, may not lead to wisdom. Because true wisdom comes from knowing the whole counsel of God. Not just cherry-picking a few things and learning a couple of facts about the Bible and trying to apply them to our lives. We have to apply the whole counsel of God so that we can understand it more fully and not just use it for our own agenda not just use it the way we want to use it, right? I can't tell you how many times I've heard 
men like to quote Ephesians where it says that women, wives should submit to their husbands. But yet they completely leave out the fact that husbands are to lay their life down as Christ laid his life for the church, right? They're, they're, they're supposed to just be crucified for their wife. Uh, wives are just supposed to submit. But they like to take things out of context, right? You see so many people take certain verses and they'll run with them, right? We, we're not to judge others, right? And so in that, in that case, we go so far with we're not to judge others that we don't judge sin. We don't allow the Bible to say, actually, the Bible says this. I'm not going to judge you, but God judges you because this is what he said, and we're too weak to say this is what the Bible says. We are to hold people accountable to the Word of God. If, if someone says something that is contrary to Scripture, we are to stand up and say no. Watch Paul time and time again confront the culture and judge the culture based on the Word of God, not his judgment, not, oh, I think you're doing wrong, or my opinion is this. Again, nobody cares about your opinion. Nobody should care about your opinion. God says this, and we speak with the authority of God as we open up his word and present it to others. And notice that we get to verse 29 here, and Paul says he gets the ability of rejoicing in his struggles from what? By the Lord. He doesn't say, because of my superior linguistic skills, my, my uncanny ability to work harder, you know, my, my superior intelligence and my natural abilities, that's helped sustain me and helps me rejoice. No, he says that, that Jesus is what? Working all of his energy into Paul. Uh, so all the energy of Paul is coming from Christ. He's doing everything through the power of Christ who strengthens him. We see that in Philippians 4.13 as well, that same idea that it's not him that does it, it's Christ who does it through him. And that is how we can rejoice as well. As we mature, we realize that we're not near as good as we thought we were. Uh, I, I, I love ignorance is bliss. It really is so true. Like, I thought I was a great parent until I had kids. I don't know about you all. Can I get an amen? Like, I was the best parent I knew until I had kids. And then when the first time they looked at me and they said no, and I was like, I thought, you know what, like, I thought they were supposed to do what I said. Like, now what do I do? You know, all of a sudden, it, it, rubber hits the road, and I was like, man, okay, you know, I'm not, I'm not near as mature and as wonderful as I once thought I was. You know, I watched my sisters have kids, and man, I knew exactly how to take care of their kids. I was like, this is what you should do, you know? I was like, I can't believe that their kids said no to them. I'm like, what's wrong with them? And then I have my own kids. I'm like, oh, wow, they all do that. Okay. <laughs> original sin, not, yours aren't broken, I guess mine are too. Sorry, kids. But, but you know, they have matured and they continue to mature, praise the Lord. But just like me, you know, I, I have to continue to mature. I, I sometimes say no as well. God says something, no, no, don't think so. Then I have to be disciplined as well. I think we all have to be disciplined that way, right? We all can need that. This, but this word, as he's, as he's talking about here, and he says he works with the power of Christ. He uses this word, uh, struggle. And that's where we got the name of this sermon. He uses this word struggle, and it is agonisame, which is where we get the word agonize, right? So this struggle, he, he doesn't downplay it. He doesn't say, you know, sometimes you get to church, and people are like, oh, life is great. I have no problems. You know what? Uh, stained glass masquerade. It's like my kids, they do everything I ask them to do. They're perfect. You know, everything is perfect. My job is perfect. I've never had anything go wrong in my whole life. And, and and we present this like this Christianity is going to fix your life. Everything's been, but then we read the Bible and we're like, Paul's in prison. You know, things aren't going too well for him. Uh, he, he's been, you know, he's been whipped a bunch of times. He's been shipwrecked. It's like, it seems like your Christian life doesn't look like people in the Bible's Christian life looks. Like, you know, it should be hard. You should be asked to do hard things. You should be called to start a church, right? I mean, that's a hard thing, right? You should be called to do something hard, to maybe 
do something at work, share the gospel with somebody that's going to maybe spit in your face. You, you should be called to do hard stuff if you are a believer. Life shouldn't always be easy. You should be called to give away something you don't want to give away. You should be called to do, there's just all kinds of things. Living the Christian life is hard. This word agonize, like it should be agonizing, but in a good way. We should rejoice in that. Be like, you know what? God, whatever you want, take it. Uh, what, what, whatever you want me to do, uh, here I am, send me, as Isaiah said, right? Because there's so much joy that comes to that, as we're going to talk about here. And this word agonizes is what we, what we usually use in the, uh, in the Greek here, what, what was usually used for an athlete. They're, they're, they're straining, they're striving, they're competing, and it's a fight and a struggle. Uh, Paul even uses the word toil right before this. It, it's hard work to follow Christ. And, and living the Christian life, it's hard work, my friends. I'm not going to try to short sell you and say, man, you should, you should become a Christian because things are going to be awesome. You're going to be the richest guy on your street. You know, things are going to be awesome. He's never going to ask you to do any hard. Like, that's a lie. That is a complete lie. And I hear people say that, and they're going to be judged accordingly. Like, you know, living the Christian life is going to be tough. But I can tell you, it's going to be full of joy, as Paul says. It will be full of joy as you obey him. So in light of all these struggles, that we're facing, we ask that question, how is it possible? How is it possible to maintain rejoicing while we are struggling? And that is joy. We, we see in, in Galatians 5, 22 through 23, but the fruit of the Spirit, right? The Spirit indwells us when we become believers, when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, and this is what comes out. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, right? So one of these, what is that, that, that second one there? Joy. And this is the root word for the word rejoice. We are able to rejoice in our struggles because we have hope for tomorrow. We don't have to guess who's in charge. We work from a position of victory, not a position of defeat. Yeah, we're going to get knocked down. Yeah, we're going to struggle. Yeah, we might th get thrown in prison if we're in Canada even these days. I mean, you know, th there is so much persecution going on in our minds. We have no idea what is going on. And it is coming. And we need to step up. We need to be ready to struggle for the Lord. We, we need to be ready to strive. Because life's going to throw us curveball after curveball. We're, we're going to have tons of things that happen to us, but he will not leave us or forsake us. So we have three ways, again, to, re to rehash what we've talked about, that we can rejoice in our Savior. Fog by focusing on the ministry, focus on what Christ is doing through you, and rejoice that he's still working even today, right? We can focus on the mystery. Continually remind yourself, of salvation in Jesus Christ that was promised all the way from the first book of the Bible, Genesis 3.15. Right? You can remind yourself of that. We work from that position of victory as we talked about. And finally, focusing on maturity. As you look back and you see those struggles, I know as I look back through the struggles of my life, going through residency and just how tough that was, uh, different, different struggles of our lives that we've went through. Uh, even the first year of marriages, we had to learn how two sinners can live together Amen, right? You know, it, it, I, I didn't realize, I also thought I was an awesome person until I got married, too. Another one of those things. I, I thought I'd be really easy to live with, and then I realized that wasn't the case, that I was a sinner. It was just hidden by the fact I was by myself. Um, so, you know, it, it, it's, it's amazing how, how great you are when you're all by yourself. Um, and, you know, nobody's, nobody's getting mad at you or anything. Uh, so, but we, what we look at those struggles, and, and we see how God takes those struggles, and he sharpens you, and he sanctifies you, and he makes you more like himself. He matures you, and he continues to grow you. And then as you take that maturity and you share the word of God with others, you can see what he's doing in other people's lives as well. And praise be to God, you can watch them mature and grow in wisdom. And there's nothing that, that just warms my heart, that, that just 
gets my spirit excited, then I want to watch my children growing, uh, when I watch other church members growing, when I watch people like taking the Word of God for what it says, growing in that, and, and just becoming closer to Christ. All right, let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for, for your Word. Uh, Lord, I just want to take a moment right now to make sure that we all know you as our Lord and Savior. We, we've mentioned the Gospel countless times today because uh, your Word is just full of the Gospel, the good news. And Lord, if there's anyone here who doesn't have your Holy Spirit living in them, they, they don't understand the fruit of the Spirit. They, they can't have love, joy, peace, patience, and kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. They, they, they can't experience those to their fullness because your Spirit does not indwell them. So God, if any of us right now, just, just may we look at our hearts, may we look at our lives, may we look at the fruit, are we maturing, are we seeing growth in our lives? And, and just take a step back and say, are we saved? Have we repented of our sins? turned from our sins and made you the Lord of your life, or we've just tried to maybe sprinkle in a little bit of Jesus and what we want to do. If, if that speaks to your heart and you're like, oh, God, I, I feel you drawing me. I, I feel you calling me to new life in you. I, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that you are my Savior. I know that you died on the cross for my sins. I, I know that you took the nails in your wrists and in your feet and that you hung there and you died for me. I believe that you are 100% God and 100% man. I believe that you rose from the dead three days after the crucifixion and that you now are at the right hand of the Father. I know that salvation is only through you. If, if you're in agreement with that and you've never submitted your life to Christ, you, you, you've never truly given your life over with, with all everybody's heads bowed, our eyes closed, no one looking around, but everybody's eyes are closed. Uh, may, may you just raise your hand and say, that, that's me. I, I, I want to put my life in your hands, Lord. I know that my life is already in your hands, but I want to acknowledge that. I, I want you to be the Lord of my life. I want to repent of my sins. I want to turn from them. I want to turn to you, Lord Jesus. If anyone has not done that, I pray that we do that today, that we make our life right with you. For those of us who have done that, I pray that we stay calibrated, uh, that, that we focus on godly things, heavenly things instead of earthly things, and that we walk in that freedom. Lord, help us go throughout today and help us to continue to mature and also to preach your word to others so that they may hear. We love you, we praise you, we thank you. It's in your awesome holy name we pray. Amen. Have a blessed week.